I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Over 24 million Americans have chronic sleep difficulties. Insomnia can lead to a lot of negative health consequences. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Tossing and turning when you can't sleep is made worse by worrying about how it will affect your performance the next day. The long-term complications of chronic insomnia are enough to keep you awake. Our guest today will offer guidance on how to make sleep your friend instead of your enemy. Dr. Jade Wu is an expert on cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. She's ready to answer your questions about how you can get the sleep you crave. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, overcoming insomnia without medications. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, psychedelics may help people revise their perceptions of themselves to make important changes in their lives. That's the conclusion from a recent analysis of journals by the participants in a 2014 study. That research showed that incorporating psilocybin with cognitive behavioral therapy sessions helped people quit smoking for many years. Reviewing patient post-treatment journals revealed that they started to view themselves as non-smokers. The lead author suggests that developing a new and different sense of self might help people break old, unwanted habits. One participant wrote, for example, I feel that I am somehow fundamentally different to yesterday. Have you ever wondered whether a healthful diet makes a real difference? A study published in JAMA Internal Medicine shows that it does. The investigators analyzed the diets of more than 75,000 women in the Nurses' Health Study and 44,000 men in the Health Professionals' Follow-Up Study. These longitudinal cohort studies offer detailed dietary data over more than 3.5 million person years. Their eating patterns were analyzed to see how closely they approached the Healthy Eating Index, the Alternate Mediterranean Diet, the Healthful Plant-Based Diet Index, or the Alternate Healthy Eating Index. People who scored well on any of these diets were less likely to die during the study. In addition, people following either the alternate Mediterranean diet or the alternate healthy eating pattern were less likely to die from a neurodegenerative disorder such as Parkinson or Alzheimer's disease. The researchers conclude that multiple healthy eating patterns can be tailored to individual tastes and will help us live longer, healthier lives. Everyone agrees that exercise is beneficial for your health. A new study shows that muscle-strengthening exercise, in particular, can reduce the risk of premature death. And it doesn't take a lot. Just 30 to 60 minutes a week of push-ups, sit-ups, weightlifting, using resistance bands, or even digging in the garden can be protective. Those are the results of a meta-analysis of cohort studies published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. The investigators analyzed data from 16 studies. Participants were adults between the ages of 18 and 98 years old. Muscle strengthening activity was linked to lower risks of cardiovascular disease, 
cancer, diabetes, and mortality from any cause. Including aerobic activity in the analysis showed that people who exercise more were less likely to die early from any causes, including cardiovascular disease and cancer. A symposium sponsored by the U.S. Tea Council summarized a number of benefits tea lovers enjoy. Researchers reported that people who regularly drink tea are less likely to have cardiovascular problems or cancer. In addition, they appear to have improved immune function and better cognitive health compared to those who do not drink tea. Scientists attribute such benefits to the flavonoid compounds found in all types of tea. That includes black, green, oolong, and white tea. There's one caveat, though. Guzzling piping hot tea could increase the risk for esophageal cancer. Coffee lovers know that if they have to give up caffeine suddenly because of surgery or some other interruption in their daily schedule, they'll probably suffer symptoms of withdrawal. The most common is headache. But fatigue, irritability, and trouble concentrating are also frequent. A new study published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology discovered that drinking good quality decaffeinated coffee can reduce caffeine withdrawal symptoms. The authors recruited 61 heavy coffee drinkers and asked them to stop drinking coffee for 24 hours. That precipitated withdrawal symptoms, including intense coffee cravings, drowsiness, fatigue, and decreased motivation. The researchers randomly assigned the volunteers to one of three groups. The control group drank water. One group got decaf coffee, but were told it was regular coffee. The last group got decaf and were told it was decaf. Surprisingly, caffeine withdrawal symptoms decreased for both groups drinking coffee, even though it was decaf. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. I'm a medical anthropologist. And I'm Joe Graydon. I'm a pharmacologist. Today, our topic is sleep. Do you have trouble falling asleep? Or do you wake up in the wee hours of the morning and have trouble getting back to sleep? What can you do to get a good night's sleep? We are delighted to welcome Dr. Jade Wu to our studio. She's a board-certified behavioral sleep medicine psychologist and a researcher at Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Wu uses evidence-based non-medication treatments to help people improve their sleep and their waking life. Her book is titled, Hello Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. Welcome, Dr. Wu. Thank you so much for having me, Terry. And Dr. Wu is here to answer your questions about sleep. Our lines are open at 888-472-3366. You can email us, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. Again, our phone number, 888-472-3366. We'd love to hear from you. Do you have a question about getting a good night's sleep? Have you figured out a way to get good night's sleep? We'd like to hear your strategy. 
Dr. Wu, we understand you got interested in sleep research at a very young age. Would you tell us about that, please? Sure. So my father actually did sleep research with astronauts in uh, at the Chinese Space Agency when I was a little, little kid, like three, four, five years old. Uh, so I think the seed was sown early for me, <laughs> even though then I went on to actually went to be uh, an econ major in college. But the econ prerequisites were at 8 a.m. And I thought, no, I'm not getting up that early. Early to take class. <laughs> so then I thought, okay, what's happening at 10 a.m.? And it was a Psych 101 course, happened to be taught by a professor who researched sleep. So here I am. I wonder how many majors are determined by the fact <laughs> that those those required courses are taught at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's a Having taught college, it's a completely different group of kids who show up at 8 a.m. than who show up at noon. And the ones that show up at noon are better rested, I bet. <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> Dr. Wu, tell us why sleep is so important for good health. We we keep hearing these stories that if you don't get a good night's sleep, there are all kinds of problems. Well, sleep is very important for health. It uh, interacts with every health system in our body. So when we don't overall get good sleep, I wouldn't necessarily say get a good night's sleep because we can all go a night or two or few without having any real problems. But if we generally don't have a good relationship with sleep, then we're much more prone to problems like lower immune functioning uh, or worse mood. We're more likely to have depression, anxiety, and other mental health problems and physical health problems too. Now, I heard you say a good relationship with sleep, and we're going to come back to that. But first, we just wanted to talk about some um, research that was published very recently. Well, there was an article in Clinical Cardiology this week. If people get less than five hours of sleep a night, it increases their risk for heart attacks. I've never heard a cardiologist say, oh, and by the way, what's your sleep like? Mm -hmm. So there's one study. And then there was another study in the Journal of the American Heart Association saying that people who had high variability with their sleep. So they, they didn't go to sleep at the same time every night or they didn't get up at the same time. They had these people wearing a... Um, uh, some kind of a device that tracks their sleep for just a week. So they didn't have, you know, a ton of data. But they had higher what's called CAC scores, calcium. Uh, ar coronary artery coronary calcium. Coronary artery calcium scores. So it seems as if sleep is important for your heart as well as all those other things you mentioned. Absolutely. Heart health is very, very much tied to, to sleep quality and quantity. Um, in fact, I think recently the American Heart Association just added good sleep to their list of foundational health factors that, you know, everybody should be paying more attention to. And I'm so glad they did because sleep, I think, was long overlooked, but now people are paying more attention. Well, we'd like to get your questions for Dr. Wu. Our number, again, 888 472-3366 is the number to call. And we'd like to hear about your strategies. What have you used to try and get a good night's sleep? Again, you can join the conversation at 888-472-3366. Dr. Wu, a few minutes ago, you mentioned 
if you don't have a good relationship with sleep. And I don't think most of us think about sleep as something we have a relationship with. Maybe we have a relationship with our partner. Maybe we have a relationship. We we, we used to have a, a guest who would come and talk about your relationship with food. Mm-hmm. But a relationship with sleep, tell me more about that. Sure, because think about how much you could think about sleep or the actions you can take around sleep. I mean, there are different ways we can act towards our friend sleep, right? Uh, or maybe sleep is not your friend. Maybe it feels like a, a chore or an engineering problem. And you try really hard to figure out strategies to sleep and you, it's on your mind all the time. You get um, hard on yourself about not getting good sleep, and it becomes a more strained kind of relationship. Uh, Whereas a good relationship is where you... you know, pay attention to sleep, you prioritize it in your life, you know that it's important, and you do healthful activities that help promote sleep. But you also don't get overbearing about sleep and get really um, rigid about your expectations. Because that kind of relationship, just like in a human relationship, if you become overbearing, that's not really helpful, right? So when we think about the relationship with sleep, I think we're talking about a more personalized and more long term set of behaviors and thoughts about sleep that are helpful. Now, I have to tell you, Dr. Wu, that um, I fear oftentimes that when we talk about the negative consequences of not getting enough sleep, it makes people anxious. And I have an email from Linda. She says, as a person who has rarely gotten more than six and a half hours of sleep per night, no matter when I go to bed or how tired I am, I hate the dogma of eight hours of sleep a night. The current refrain of how adversely it affects a person's brain to get less is contributing to the problem. Those of us who function well on fewer hours can lie awake worrying about not getting eight hours. Well, I think Linda has a really, really good point here. And, you know, the eight-hour dogma, um, as she says, I think is sometimes very harmful to our relationship with sleep as a society. Just like, you know, we don't say to people, everyone should get 1,500 calories. It depends on who you are, right? It depends on your biology, your age, your lifestyle, what you did today. So, you know, some of us don't need eight hours. Some of us need more. So it's very possible that Linda needs less than eight hours of sleep per night. Or even if she did at one point, perhaps she doesn't anymore. So I really think it's better to understand your own sleep need and to listen to your body for how much sleep you need instead of following this dogma of eight hours. And we go to the phones. Charles in Durham, welcome to the People's Pharmacy. Hello. Hi, Charles. I have a question somewhat related to the other one. I wake up in the middle of the night, like a lot of people, around 3.30 in the morning, but I can't get back to sleep. I have no problem falling asleep, but I cannot get back to sleep in the middle of the morning. And I know if I try cognitive behavioral therapy, I'll just be staying awake. Can you please help me out? Okay. You know, I, I suspect that there are a lot of people like Charles. I have to admit that I'm one of them. And what I've done is I've taken to listening to, like, the BBC. And so at 3 o'clock in the morning, if I woke up, you know, the BBC – It'll put me back to sleep pretty fast. You know, they're talking about Brexit and blah, 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 and it's a British accent, and I'm pretty soon I'm fast asleep. But what can we do for Charles? Well, Charles, I think this is a really good question because, as Joe said, 
a lot of people experience this 3 a.m., 3.30 a.m. wake up. So I think the first question I would have for you, Charles, is, you know, when do you go to bed? Somewhere around 11 o'clock. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so if you had something said something like 8 p.m., that would be a very different story. You know, if you went to bed really early, fell asleep and slept all the way until 3.30, you know, that might be enough sleep for you. But if you went to bed at around 11, then it sounds like you probably are not getting enough sleep if you're just up for the day at 3.30. So it, I have a couple of thoughts here. One is that it's actually very natural to wake up during the night. That in and of itself is not a problem. In fact, historically, we used to sleep in two chunks in prehistoric, um, not prehistoric, I'm sorry, pre-industrial Europe. People used to sleep the first half of the night, then be up for an hour or two, and then go back for their second sleep. And that actually matches a natural break in our sleep architecture, where we switch from having more deep sleep in the first um, half or third of the night to having more REM sleep in the second half. So the two halves of your night are actually qualitatively different. So it's natural to wake up. Now, it's what you do once you wake up that matters. So you could lie there and be very frustrated and try really hard to get back to sleep, which might actually raise your anxiety and make it harder to fall back to sleep. Or you could sit up in bed and read or listen to the BBC or get out of bed and do something else enjoyable and not associate your bed with being frustrated and being awake, which in the long run um, could, you know, improve your relationship with sleep. We had a call from uh, Nahami in Binghamton, New York. Well, we could take and, the call well, from we, Nahami uh, uh, after what, our break. It basically reinforces the message. Uh, Nahami says, you know, I get small chunks rather than sleep through. And it sounds like that can work pretty well for some people. Yes. It's not bad to wake up during the night. You're listening to Dr. Jane Wu, behavioral sleep medicine psychologist and researcher at Duke University School of Medicine. She's the author of Hello Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. After the break, we're going to talk a little bit about sleeping pills. Why are so many sleeping pills potentially problematic? even over-the-counter antihistamines that make people drowsy. What about medications that make it hard to fall asleep? Our and lines are open, 888-472-3366. If you can't get through on the phone, you can email us. It's radio at peoplespharmacy.com. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. 
15. More information at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs, providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. Connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia Herbs, G-A-I-A-Herbs.com. In our studio, we're joined by Dr. Jade Wu, a board-certified behavioral sleep medicine psychologist and researcher at Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Wu uses evidence-based non-medication treatments to help people improve their sleep. She's especially passionate about helping new parents navigate sleep challenges during pregnancy and postpartum. She's the author of Hello Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. And our lines are open for your questions at 888-472-3366. You can send us an email, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. That phone number again, 888-472-3366. Dr. Wu, sleep medications, I suspect they're very popular because it seems like a quick fix. You know, can't get to sleep, I'll pop a pill. And there are so many, I mean, the one that comes to mind most quickly is Ambien, which is known under the generic name Zolpidem, but there's probably what? Well, there's tons of Z drugs. And I mean, there's three. And then there's benzodiazepines, which also have a Z in them. <laughs> well, Xanax is one example, if I'm not mistaken. and um, It's an X, even though it sounds like a Z. Right. That's okay. <laughs> but, but then there are all of the off-label. And I so, think benzodiazepines are off-label for sleep as well. I don't believe they're approved as sleep medications, are they? At least some of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then there's the, like, clonidine... And I know a lot of people take amitriptyline, which is a sedating antihistamine to get to sleep. So give us your overview on sleeping pills in general. You're right, Joe. There are a lot of different types of pills used for sleep. Not all of them are FDA approved to treat insomnia. Some of them are. Um, but many medications, including the very popular trazodone, are actually not meant to treat sleep and don't have quite enough evidence to be FDA approved. And then there are the over-the-counter medications that people use for themselves, like melatonin is a very popular one that you've probably heard people talk about. Um, so here's the thing about sleep medications. Uh, they are the ones that are FDA approved to treat insomnia are generally meant to be taken short term, a um, couple weeks, you know, a few weeks, and are meant to get people over a, an acute bout of insomnia that they're having due to a stressful event or something like that. They're not meant to be used long term because one, we don't really know the long term uh, side effects or, or risks of taking these medications, although that does happen. I often see patients that have taken Ambien, for example, for many, many years because they don't, uh, they don't really get 
uh, guidance about how to come off of Ambien in a sustainable way or what alternative alternatives there are. So often people are saying, I'll choose the lesser of two evils. I have to sleep, so I'm going to take something that helps me. And, and once you get into that kind of habit, it, it can be a bit challenging because there, for some of these medications, there can be rebound insomnia. Yes, for almost all of them, I would say there are there is some rebound insomnia, which is a very natural response for your brain to have. If you've been taking something for a while, once you take that away, your brain is going to take time to readjust to the new reality. So, of course, there's rebound insomnia and there's psychological dependence that people have, too. Well, let's talk about a different kind of sleep medication. We have an email from Anne, and Anne says, let me pull Anne up. Let me see if I can make that work. Anne says, I recently participated in dry January. I used to have two glasses of wine every night, and I found after a week I was sleeping better. I have continued not to drink. And she says it's making a big difference in her sleep. What's the story? Good for you, Anne. This is really great. So alcohol is not helpful for sleep. It might feel like it's helping you to pass out, but this passing out is not necessarily good quality sleep. It keeps your body temperature higher. It keeps your metabolism more um, activated. And often people are getting less deep sleep, even if they do feel like they're sleeping with alcohol. Now, I left one other piece out. Anne says, I use yoga breathing to get back to sleep, and it really works for me. What about that? Well, breathing is an excellent way to calm down your body and mind. Um, Often we are going around shallow breathing or just not paying attention to our bodies. So when we do become mindful and take time to actually breathe and pay attention to our breath, that can be really helpful to center and ground us. And we've got a call from Irene in Florence, South Carolina. Irene, welcome to the People's Pharmacy. Hi, thanks. I recently became aware of a phrase called natural short sleepers. And I'm thinking I'm one of those folks, but what I'm really wondering is, is my health impacted because I don't get the recommended dosage of sleep? That's that's a great question, Irene. So natural short sleepers, I believe you're referring to someone who just is um, genetically predisposed to shorter sleep and needing shorter sleep. Uh, so this does exist. It's rare-ish. Um, it depends on how short your sleep is. But it is true. There is a, a range in how much sleep people need. Some people need a lot more than eight hours. Some people need a much less than eight hours. So if you feel like you can function well during the day, you're not sleepy during the day and you know if you can't sleep more even if you tried then you may be a natural short sleeper does that sound like you irene it does for the most part for the most part i i don't get sleepy during the day i mean there are days sure where i do but i'm functioning um probably less than about six hours or you know five five and a half hours it's not necessarily by choice, but, but for example, I do have a story um, when apparently the, my mother would tell a story when I was an infant. I lived like a few months old. I apparently had stayed up one day or stayed awake one day for, you know, as long as an adult did before I fell asleep. So um, 
but just generally, yeah, I, I don't really get even six hours of sleep. And I tend to be able to wake up without an alarm. And I tend to be able to go without getting sleepy. I do fall asleep quite quickly at night, but I'm also a, a light sleeper as well. So, Well, yeah. thank you so much for the call. And it just shows that there are people who can manage quite nicely and fall asleep quite well on relatively little sleep. Let's go to Dallas, Texas, Terry. Paul. Hi, Paul. Yes. Welcome welcome yes. to the People's Pharmacy. What's on your mind? Hey, y'all. So uh, I typically don't eat after 7, you know, and then I eat with a lightly. But are there some foods that are especially conducive to sleep? We'll find out. Are there any foods that are especially helpful before we go to sleep? Or foods that we should avoid. I would say more along the lines of foods we should avoid, like caffeine, for example, or really heavy meals. We don't want to have close to bedtime. But there's not any specific foods that really make much of a difference, especially if you have problems with sleep, if you have insomnia or another sleep disorder. A food is certainly not going to be the answer that solves your problem. So I would say generally have good nutritious food, have um, a healthy relationship with food, and don't eat too big of a meal close to bedtime, and you should be fine. Okay. We go to Paul in Meadville, Pennsylvania. Paul, what's your story? Uh, good morning. I'm, I'm really interested in this. I would like her to address the poor population of employees that have to work all night and sleep all day. I, I did this most of my working life up until... Uh, years ago, I, after working a eight-day and seven-day work schedule, uh, I had three heart attacks and it took me right out of the workforce. And uh, I, I had all kind of problems. And even now, I have a problem uh, sleeping in the dark and being awake in the daylight. But uh, how, how about those folks that have to work that kind of a schedule? Well, thank you for that call, Paul. Um, shift workers... Nurses, doctors, people like Paul, they have challenges and there are health consequences. Absolutely. Shift work is a really tough one. I'm sorry to hear that, Paul. Um, so shift work is really tough for our sleep and for our general health because our circadian rhythms really like to have consistency. So your circadian rhythm is your body clock, and it runs roughly every 24 hours. And, it, you know, we are daytime animals, so we are meant to be awake during the day and asleep at night. So when our rhythms don't run like that, when we are, uh, you know, asleep during the day, awake at night, or we're even worse, shifting back and forth between being daytime and nighttime animal, then our circadian rhythms do not like that. And that tends to have health impacts for our heart health, as it did for Paul, um, for our immunity, for our mental health. All sorts of problems can arise from that. In fact, there are large studies following nurses over years showing that nurses who uh, have done nighttime, uh, shift work, night shift work, which is most nurses at some point, have a higher chance of having breast cancer years later. So shift work really is a huge burden on our bodies. And so I would advise for people who must do shift work, who cannot get out of doing shift work, to try and stay as consistent 
for longer stretches as possible. So instead of rotating between days and nights multiple times during a week, try to go, you know, like a whole week working just nights or keeping a night schedule um, and, and or even longer if possible. And then staying on a home-based schedule that's in between a day and a night schedule while they're off of work so that when they shift again, it's not as big of a shift that they have to make. You're listening to Dr. Jade Wu, a board-certified behavioral sleep medicine psychologist and researcher at Duke University School of Medicine. Her book is called Hello Sleep. The Let me grab it here. The subtitle is The Science and the Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. Our phone lines are open if you'd like to join the conversation, 888-472-3366. And we've got an email from Joe who wants to know if there are health benefits to lucid dreaming. We haven't talked about dreams at all. Yes. What a fascinating question, Joe. So lucid dreaming, for those who don't know, is when you dream and you're aware that you're in a dream. And some people can even control what happens in a dream. So lucid dreaming can have potential benefits, especially for folks who uh, have been plagued by nightmares uh, or difficulties with uh, sleep quality or dream quality. Um, Having a control over their dreams can help them to um, feel less anxious about dreaming um, can help them to get over their nightmares. Sometimes uh, their nightmares are associated with traumas that they've experienced in the past. So lucid dreaming has been shown to improve people's mood and possibly even improve sleep quality. Now, for those of us who aren't aware that we're having a nightmare, I mean, it's very real when we're in the middle of it. And we would like to take back control or we'd like to get out of it, but we're stuck. Is there any way to program yourself to not feel so panicky? Yes, absolutely. So nightmares are actually a learned behavior for your brain, which means the more you nightmare and the more you get into the habit of nightmaring, the more your brain is likely to do it the next night. So what a couple of things I would recommend. One is that when you have a nightmare, wake yourself all the way up. So, you know, grab a drink of water, get up to go to the restroom and ground yourself in the reality using your five senses before trying to get back to sleep. That way you sort of interrupt the the program of nightmaring a little bit. And also during the day, you can think about your nightmare and change whatever aspect of it you want to and rehearse that new dream that you've come up with yourself so that your brain is more familiar with this positive dream content and it's more likely to uh, allow you to feel like you have more control next time you, you nightmare. I have done that. I think I mentioned that I am a martial arts practitioner and I have um, sort of rehearsed the nightmare and changed the ending so that I am the person who wins. Uh-huh. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and it does seem to it does seem to I don't have that same nightmare again. Fantastic. I did have a quick follow-up question on the sleeping pills. A lot of people buy over-the-counter sleeping pills because it's like, okay, I don't need a doctor's prescription. There are now a whole bunch of PM medicines like Advil PM, Aleve PM, Tylenol PM, and the PM usually stands for diphenhydramine, an antihistamine, the same drug that's found in Benadryl. What's your take on 
p.m. sleeping pills. So I, uh, you know, I think this can be helpful in the short term for people who are having uh, acute illness-related or uh, stress-related sleeping problems. Uh, what I am concerned about is when people use these long-term and without the direction of a doctor. Um, so when people use over-the-counter medications, they often uh, don't read the label with the you know the uh, the warning labels and the instructions for how to take the medications, and they end up taking these long-term, and that could have side effects. And at, at the very least, they will develop psychological dependency on these medications and not really address the roots of their sleeping problem. One of the things I worry about with those PM medications is that many times the people who are taking them are older individuals. And these that usually the PM is, as Joe said, diphenhydramine. It's very anticholinergic and it can kind of scramble your brain. I know even before I was an older person, it would scramble my brain. So I discovered that I really couldn't couldn't take it. And I think that, you know, people may say, oh, I'm losing my memory, I'm confused, and not realize that it's the medicine they're taking to get to sleep at night. We just have about a minute before the break, but I'm wondering, Dr. Wu, are there any quote-unquote natural remedies, any herbal approaches that people can take that might be uh, beneficial without some of the risks? Well, these herbal remedies that have a little bit of research behind them, like lettuce seed, for example, there's just not quite enough research to show that they're really that effective. And we don't know if they're effective for really truly turning your sleep around in the long run. So I think really the best natural remedy is to change your relationship with sleep using an evidence-based approach like cognitive behavioral therapy or related therapies. We're going to definitely talk about CBT when we come back after the break. What about melatonin? I know a lot of people now buy melatonin. We have about 30 seconds before. Melatonin is actually not meant to treat insomnia, believe it or not, because it's not a sedating medication. What it does is it shifts your circadian phase. So, you know, you can shift the timing of when you feel sleepy and when you feel awake with melatonin taken at the correct times, but it doesn't necessarily solve problems of not being able to fall asleep or stay asleep. You're listening to Dr. Jade Wu, behavioral sleep medicine psychologist and researcher at Duke University School of Medicine. She uses evidence-based non-drug treatments to help people improve their sleep. Her book is titled Hello Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. Our lines are open for your questions, 888-472-3366. You can email us, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. When we come back, we're going to talk about cognitive behavioral therapy as a strategy to help you get the sleep you want. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. 
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, offering plant-based nutrients in the form of cocoflavanols for brain and heart health. Online at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today we're discussing insomnia and how you can overcome it without medications. Our guest is Dr. Jade Wu, behavioral sleep medicine psychologist and researcher at Duke University School of Medicine. Her book is Hello Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. We welcome your questions, your Answers. If you've got a solution to insomnia, we'd love to hear about it. Our number is 888-472-3366. You can email us, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. And Grafton in Charlotte, North Carolina, has been waiting to tell us a story and ask a question. Grafton, please go ahead. Hello. I had a bicycle accident on November 1st. It was self-induced, no real speed involved, but it it resulted in six femur breaks, fractures, oh, and nice. an existing hip implant had to be removed and replaced with a longer-stemmed hip implant. So it was quite traumatic. Uh, this was all happened in Spain, and uh, everything uh, was done well by the surgeons. However, immediately after that, I had an incredibly difficult time sleeping. And I normally, prior to the accident, did have reasonably continuous sleep for eight hours. I might have to get up to uh, relieve myself maybe twice a night or every every second night, but I uh, would go back to sleep. But after this, I had an incredibly hard time falling asleep, and I had a hard time to maintain any consistent sleep for any length of time. So I went from burning 2,000 calories a day in exercise zero and I couldn't walk I was on a walker and couldn't go very far so I felt like that the lack of exercise prevented me from being normally tired at the end of the day or without the lack without the exercise and I thought maybe that was some part of the problem we've moved on four months now I'm on one cane and I walk in with a limp but I'm improving but the sleep still is a problem. I can usually fall asleep, but then I wake up and find it hard to get more than four hours a night. Now, Grafton, just to have a quick question, how's your pain level? Essentially zero. Excellent. And never has been a serious issue. Okay, glad to hear that. Surgery. Let's turn to Dr. Wu. Dr. Wu, any suggestions for Grafton? Because obviously his life has been turned upside down since that bike accident. Oh, Grafton, I'm so sorry to hear. That sounds extremely painful and traumatic. So I, I'm not too surprised to hear that your sleep was disrupted by a big injury like that. Um, as you say, not only did you go down to uh, having no exercise from being a very active person, um, and you also had surgery, you had recovery, and also just the, the trauma of having gone through something like that is very 
um, you know, it revs up your body and brain and makes your body more hypervigilant for threats in, in the environment. So between all of those factors, of course, your sleep is going to go off track. Now, I wouldn't necessarily worry that this will last forever. I would advise that, you know, we we sort of really go with the flow of listening to your body for what sleep you need and can get at this moment. Because now that things are different, it doesn't, you don't necessarily need the same amount of sleep or in the same um, shape or form that you did before. So trying to force it too much is actually going to keep your insomnia going and make it uh, potentially make it into a long-term problem. So let's, you know, listen to your body. Don't go to bed too early before you're sleepy. And if you wake up during the night, that's okay. It's natural to wake up. Uh, but let's not, you know, stay in bed trying to force falling back to sleep. Trying really hard in bed to fall back to sleep is actually the worst thing you can do. What I would do is sit up or get up um, and read a book or do something else relaxing and enjoyable, not for the sake of knocking you yourself out to get back to sleep, but just for the sake of enjoying that extra me time and, you know, not making nighttime to be such a frustrating experience. So I, I wish you the best of luck. Let's turn to CBT. What does that stand for? It stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. Now, would you tell us about that, please? We have been uh, reading for years now that there is actually quite good evidence that it can work. But what we have been hearing from people who get in touch with us is, oh, I tried that and it didn't help. So there's a disconnect there. Well, first of what all, is what is it? it? Yeah, uh, Sure. So CBT is a non-medication treatment for insomnia, and it's actually the gold standard first-line treatment for insomnia, according to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, American uh, College of Physicians, because there's a ton of research showing that it does work for most people. Now, when people say that they've already tried CBT and it didn't work for them, often they didn't actually do CBT specifically for insomnia. They've done CBT for something else mm -hmm. because there are lots of CBTs, but it, CBT for insomnia is special in that it really targets your sleep physiology, your sleep behaviors, and your sleep thoughts, the, the way you think about sleep. So how does it do those things? So, for example, I would work with a patient for four or five sessions usually where we track their sleep using a sleep diary or other methods. And we together look at their patterns to figure out, you know, what is getting in the way of your good sleep? Because we know that for most, the vast majority of people, their brains can sleep and want to sleep. So we just need to take barriers out of the way. So for example, sometimes people are trying really hard to get back to sleep when they wake up during the night. So then they end up being really frustrated in bed and they're counting down the hours like, oh, I only have two hours left. I only have an hour and a half left. If I don't get back to sleep soon, I'm going to be so tired tomorrow, I won't be able to function. So that anxiety is actually the thing that's keeping them up at this point. So how can we get rid of that anxiety, um, start to look at a more complete and balanced, fair picture, and see, well, in the past, have I been able to function the next day, even after a poor night of sleep? 
well, actually, yeah, I've had insomnia for 10 years and, you know, I'm still holding down my job just fine, still have my marriage intact, you know. So people are often functioning much better than they think they can. And also often people are getting more sleep than they think they are because of, um, you know, the way we perceive sleep differently when we've had insomnia. So I work with people to change the way they relate to sleep in this way and the actions, the behaviors, the scheduling that they do around sleep. And uh, you'd be surprised at how quickly people can reset their their sleep physiology. Now, you mentioned a sleep diary. And I'm wondering, how do you keep a diary when you're asleep? (laughs) So a sleep diary, maybe we should call it a sleep log. It's actually just a really quick one-minute questionnaire that you fill out in the morning after you wake up. uh, Just to log, you know, your sleep behaviors, like when did you go to bed last night? How long did it take you to fall asleep? Things like that. So when I see those sleep log data, I'm able to see lots of patterns and information that help me to help someone um, identify their actions around sleep that are not helpful. Dr. Wu, a lot of people complain that they can't turn off their brain. That is to say, you know, they're, they're thinking about, okay, I have a big important meeting tomorrow. I have a deadline next week. I have all these things that I have to do. And they start playing them over and over again when they lie down and try to go to sleep. Or if they wake up at three in the morning, they start thinking about, you know, other kinds of projects that they have on the on the drawing board. How do you turn off your brain? <laughs> Great question, because this is a very common experience. So here's the thing. You can't turn off your brain. Your brain is meant to be active all the time when you're awake because that's just how the brain is designed. So here's the common misconception. We think that our busy brains, our thoughts, are the things keeping us awake. But really, it's because we're awake that there is room for our brains to spin. So what we really want to figure out is why are you not sleepy at this time? What's, you know... Either it's the wrong time to be going to bed or there's something else keeping you awake that creates that vacuum for your brain to fill with thoughts. Now, we have an email from Bill. Bill wants to know, he says, I'm 84. I'd like to hear about the pros and cons of taking naps. Now, we all know that little kids need naps, although different little kids may outgrow their nap time at different times. Mm -hmm. What about older people? So naps in and of themselves can be wonderful things. I mean, around the world, there are so many cultures that take siestas, right? So uh, the thing about napping is that it's a double-edged sword. When you nap too frequently or too long or too late in the day, then that can negatively impact your nighttime sleep. For someone who's older, for example, for someone who's, uh, you know, 84, it, uh, you know, they often could find themselves in the position of, being able to take multiple naps during the day or take a long nap during the day um, and then wondering why they can't sleep at night. And for older people, you know, we tend to need less sleep as we get older anyway. And if we're taking some of that sleep and putting it during the day, then of course we're going to have uh, less sleep that we can have at night. So, you know, I would really say napping can be really great if we keep it short, like 30 minutes or so and earlier in the afternoon. And if you're going to do it, do it uh, at a scheduled siesta time rather than haphazardly all over the place. I know that if I fall asleep by accident, let's say watching television at 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, uh-huh. I have a hard time falling asleep. Whereas normally I just 
I'm out. <laughs> so that nap can be a problem. Well, that nap can be very powerful. It's really just, you know, it's telling your brain, uh, you know, this is a boost of energy now. Now you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You've prepared for this. You can get a second wind. And that's maybe not the message we want to be sending. At 10 o'clock at night. Right, right exactly. before your, your bedtime. Uh, let's go to Cheryl in Cary, North Carolina. Hi, Cheryl. Hello, Cheryl. Okay, we may have lost Cheryl. Uh, I'm, I'm here. Oh, Sorry about that. That's okay. okay. Go Hello. ahead, please. So I have had trouble sleeping almost my entire di- adult life, and I am now 62 years old. And I found something that helps me just about every single time. I read it somewhere. I can't remember what it's called, but it's a breathing pattern. And you breathe in for uh, a count of four, a very deep breath, get it to the bottom of your lungs. And then you hold it for a count of seven, and then you breathe out for a count of eight. And I have gotten to uh, doing that three times, and usually the next morning I wake up, and that's the last thing I remember doing. I don't remember having any trouble falling asleep after doing that. Cheryl, thanks so much for that. Dr. Wu, breathing. Yes. It's helpful. Yes, it sure is. So good for you, Cheryl. It sounds like you found something that really works for you. And I think so the the 478 breathing technique Cheryl described can also be a double-edged sword. It clearly works for her, so that's great. She can keep doing it. For many people I work with, they've tried something like that and they've actually found that to be stressful because then they have to count, they're holding their breath, they're like is this too long, too short. Mm-hmm. So for people who experience that, I would just say forget about the counting, just breathe. Just pay attention to the breath and follow your own natural rhythm. We've got another story. Anne in Dallas, Texas, wants to tell us about her approach. Please go ahead, Anne. Hello. Hi, Anne. I recently ac- hello. I recently acquired a sunrise alarm clock. I had never heard of this, but it simulates sunset and sunrise. Uh, theoretically releasing melatonin. And in the last month now, I am sleeping nine to 10 hours a night. And when I do have to wake up in the middle of the night, I'm falling back asleep faster. I was wondering if your guest could comment on that machine. Before we ask Dr. Wu, what is a sunrise alarm clock? It's a, it looks like a little round ball that sits on your nightstand and it lights up um, gradually in the morning to to wake you gradually rather than an abrupt alarm clock and for the sunset function it gradually reduces light like a, a sunset would. Dr. Wu, have you ever heard of anything like that? Yes, yes, and I have something sort of like it, but I I don't need it because my three-year-old wakes me up in the morning. Um, but, but yes, and that's a really great point you bring up. So light is a very, very powerful thing for our circadian rhythms, for our body clock. We need lots of light exposure during the day and preferably very little light at night in order for our circadian rhythms to function properly. So when you are getting that light, especially first thing in the morning, that's really teaching our brains, uh, you know, to set an anchor in that 24-hour cycle to know when it is uh, sunrise time, when it's time to become awake. So, you know, and by having that uh, consistent 
time that your own biological sun kind of rises for you, your circadian rhythm really likes that and has learned um, to consistently at the same time kind of fire up your your engines and and to you know allow your brain to know when it's day and when it's night. And that contrast between how much light you're getting in the morning and how much light you get, uh, light you get at night is really helpful for your sleep quality as well. Sleep masks, it sort of fits with that same idea, keeping the light out, right? Yes, absolutely. Because at night, even a little bit of light, especially blue light, um, can really uh, uh, tamp down on your melatonin secretion. And so we want to shut out light when we're sleeping. And stop looking at screens, what, an hour before? Uh, sure, or or dim them at least. It's not so important as people say, because as long as you're getting lots of light during the day, the contrast between day and night is still big and that you'll still be okay. Julia Ann, please tell us your story. Hi there. Uh, we just have about 30 listening. seconds, Julianne, so please make it quick. Okay, I'll make it short. I'm living with long COVID Delta was the third go round, and it exacerbated a brain injury from 20 years ago. And I've been dealing with not being able to sleep. Oh, we just have about 15 seconds, Dr. Wu. Yeah, that's so tough. Uh, long COVID is something we're still keeping an eye on. We know it has affected many people's sleep. Um, but yeah, we need more data to learn more about how long COVID affects that. Yeah. And summing up, sleep, really important, and cognitive behavioral therapy, one way to tackle it. It is the gold standard way to do so. Now, the one problem with cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, not very many people offer it. That's correct. That is a huge problem we need to solve. Uh, but, you know, fortunately, we do have some new technologies like apps um, that, uh, you know, do CBTI. Great. That's all the time we have. I'm sorry we just ran out. Dr. Jade Wu, thank you so much for joining us on The People's Pharmacy today. You are a researcher at Duke University School of Medicine. Your book is great. Hello, Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Pamela Alberta provided technical assistance. Al Wodarski engineered The People's Pharmacy. Theme music is by B.J. Lederman. The People's Pharmacy is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements, supporting cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at Cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,333. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. You can subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our website on Monday morning. If you go to peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter. Learn about drug alerts and uh, also find out what our weekly podcast will be about. We also mentioned Gaia Herbs. We forgot that. They provide transparency through their Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, that's G-A-I-A herbs.com. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. Thank you so much for listening to The People's Pharmacy, and we hope that you will get a good night's sleep going forward. And thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Wu. Thank you so much for having me.
Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. I'm Joe Graydon. It's and I'm Terry Graydon. And a pleasure Welcome to, to this bring podcast of the People's Pharmacy. You can find out. previous podcasts and, and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.